Welcome to the Arlington Street Church Podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. Find something likable about this one, was all the caseworker said as he tossed the folder on the conference room table in front of me. In his mind, he had found the one, the one young man who would prove me wrong and him right. You see, that although we work with the same clients who are committed to the Department of Youth Services, we often had very different views of them. Dave favored the deficit model, where pathologizing was commonplace. I, as a clinical social worker, see and saw things quite differently. I would cringe when caseworkers would, and others would describe clients as thugs, lowlifes, dregs, or worse. I wholeheartedly believe that there are no bad kids, and I encourage others to do the same. I do not see evil as an immutable trait. If I believed, alternatively, that some percentage of people were evil, then I would encounter them. Instead, I refuse to believe this and continue to look for the goodness that I know resides in all. Admittedly, in some, it is buried deeply, covered by years of maltreatment and neglect that changes their perception of themselves. Ultimately, people act in a way that reflects their self-concept, their belief of who they are. This comes from their experiences and what they are told by the world. Several years ago, when I worked with younger children, I had a seven-year-old client named Kevin. He was acting out physically both at home and at school, and he was referred to see me. You know, fix him. That's often what we get told as social workers. Um, we developed a good relationship, and I got to see the sweet side of him that he didn't display very often. When, when Kevin was young, he witnessed severe domestic violence against his mother. This is extremely traumatic, as you might guess, for any child. He then heard almost daily from his mother what a no-good so-and-so his father was, only she didn't say so-and-so. When Kevin misbehaved, his mother would say, you're just like your father. These words delivered additional blows to his already fragile psyche. I worked with his family and the school to design what I thought was a very good behavior management program to address his acting out in his um, needs. I then met with him to explain it to him and to get his feedback. He sat slumped in his chair with his head hung down across from me and said softly but firmly, it won't work. I asked, why, don't you think it's a good plan? He replied, no, it's a good plan. I asked, why then? He said, I'm too bad. I'm too bad. Imagine thinking this at age seven. The ramifications were on full display. He behaved in a way that not only reflected his self-image, but got it confirmed and reinforced daily. I asked Kevin if he trusted me. He nodded his head yes. I then asked him to look at me, and I said, I want you to really hear what I'm saying. You are a good kid. Sure, your behavior needs improvement, but you are good. Still chokes me up a little. Um, as I said this, his little body literally inflated in front of me. He was internalizing my belief about him. It did not take much time, however, for him to deflate after our sessions. One time when I was getting him from his classroom, I asked his teacher how he was doing. She bellowed across the room, he's terrible. 
I offered rather impudently, I'm sure you mean his behavior, as I ushered him out the room as quickly as I could. I once attended a talk by Buddhist teacher and friend of ASC, Sylvia Borstein, where she was asked a question about why people commit evil acts. She answered quite simply, they have forgotten their true nature. This may sound like an oversimplification, but it is not. Our true nature, what we are born with, is goodness. Only through interactions with the world does this appear to alter. But in reality, it remains unchanged. It sometimes just is obscured, harder to see, like a pilot light in an old gas stove. It may be barely visible and buried down deep, but it is still there. Unfortunately, as a society, we do more to try to extinguish it than to bring it back to full glow. Another way to look at this is, if a person is living, an animated being, something is keeping them alive, the thing that distinguishes them from someone who is not. It may be called a soul, a spirit, life force, chi, prana, nature, divine energy, whatever it is, as long as we are living, all beings have it. There is an analogy from science that demonstrates this to me. There is no such thing as cold. There is just heat, and the absence of heat, which we refer to as cold. Don't feel bad if you didn't know that. I just learned it recently. <laughs> um, just like there is no evil, only the absence of the belief in one's own innate goodness. There is a story about an African tribe's model of restorative justice that inspires me. When a member of the tribe does something to cause harm, the whole tribe gathers around him. They each tell him of some kindness or good deed that he has done in the past reminding him of his best self. This is the antithesis of our system, which shames, stigmatizes, and labels, and then we complain about high rates of recidivism. To paraphrase Plato, what a society cultivates is what will grow there. I want to share another example from my work. Ray was a young man who was difficult to like, even for me. He actively repelled people with his hostile attitude and extremely poor hygiene. I would have to open the windows even in the dead of winter after we met to air out my office. I quickly saw this as a defense mechanism to keep people away, and it was working. Therefore, never getting close and being open to the possibility of being hurt again. Ray was a junior. Ray Sr. was in jail for molesting Ray's younger sister. Ray had difficulty accepting this as being true, even though both his mother and sister testified in court against his father. Clearly, as his only male role model, this had a major impact on Ray's self-concept. Sitting with him for 50 minutes seemed like an eternity. He proudly called himself an anarchist and wanted to dismantle all systems of government. That is, until I told him no one would be there to pick up his trash. Um, during, <laughs> during our, that's true. During our, first session, he, during our first session, he scored a rare triple play insult when he told me that most therapists are female because it's so easy anyone could do it thus insulting me, my profession, and all women in one terse sentence. <laughs> right? He was, he was good. Um, when discussing his legal charges, he refused to take responsibility for any of his actions, often blaming his victims instead. His life consisted of drinking coffee, smoking cigarettes, and using the computer. Yet I had to find a connection. I asked him about his computer activity to spur a discussion. He was into online fantasy games, something I knew little, very little about, he told me that he was on a team with people from Texas and that they were called the White Knights. Yeah, does that concern anyone? So, um, so I said to myself upon hearing this, geez, please don't be a racist, Ray. I'm trying really hard to like you, and that will make it very difficult. 
Perhaps my face divulged my thoughts because he said, it's not a racist thing. So I said, okay, we'll go with that for now and revisit it later. Um, as he began to trust me, he shared his interest in web design and would give me URLs so I could check out the sites he developed between our sessions. I would then provide him with feedback. He had some real talent, but lacked the confidence to share it with anyone previously. The impact of this initial connection, simply showing an interest in him, seeing him as having some value, was quite profound. He started to shower, comb his hair, brush his teeth. He eventually got a job at Dunkin' Donuts. He was there several times a day anyways. His, his, case, his caseworker asked me, what did you do to Ray? He's like a different person. We don't have to drag him here to see you anymore. He practically runs up the stairs. His progress was glacial, but it was very significant for him just the same. It began with the simple belief that if this guy, who seems relatively sane, likes me, then maybe there's something, something likable about me. Jonathan's transformation was much more dramatic. He was the client, you may remember from the beginning, whose folder was tossed in front of me like a gauntlet to find something likable about. He was a very large 17-year-old who appeared even taller due to his protruding afro. He reacted to his multiple traumas by becoming physically aggressive, getting involved, and abusing substances. He had what seemed to be a permanent scowl, a furrowed brow, and a glaring stare. People in the office barely hid their contempt of him, contempt and fear of him. And if I noticed this, you can be sure that he did too. During our first several meetings, Jonathan refused to sit and instead paced about the room. He verbally challenged me and said things like, why should I trust you? Which I think is a very legitimate and valid question. If he was unable to trust his own parents, why should he trust some stranger? His parents were both incarcerated, and he bounced from relative to relative throughout his childhood. He once told me that in all his 17 years, he never had a birthday party. That may not sound like a big deal, but it only, only epitomizes the level of emotional deprivation that he experienced. He continued to occasionally challenge me, but he also repeatedly came back, indicating that in spite of his overt skepticism, he desired a connection. After two months of meeting together, his best friend died of an accidental gunshot wound. Lacking constructive coping skills and knowing he wrote rap lyrics, I suggested he write something about his friend. He wrote and shared with me the following poem. It's titled, I Can't Believe You're Gone. I usually don't cry, but for you I shedded tears. Life to me is no longer one of my fear, as long as I know I'll meet you up there. People say that for you they smoke and drink, but only if they sit back and think why you became the missing link. I wish I could remember this episode and start all over so I could be the angel over your shoulder. I now have a bad circle of life because your life ended in unjust strife. And then, you probably won't be able to see this, but he drew doves on the top, and then he signed his name at the, at the bottom. So after I read his poem, I told him how beautiful I thought it was, and that with his permission, I would like to share it with others at the office. The young man who died previously was involved with DYS too, and I knew others would benefit from and appreciate seeing Jonathan's poem. Not being used to getting positive recognition for anything, he enthusiastically agreed to let me share it. Um, and you may have guessed, but I had an additional motive in doing so. So I bought a, diplo a, a diploma frame, excuse me, to hang his poem in, and it was on the wall right outside, where the, right outside my office where everyone would see as they entered the floor. The other kids read it and said things like, that's mad deep, or that's cool. Some got vi visibly emotional. The staff's reactions were more complex. When they got to the end and read his name, they were shocked. Dave actually rubbed his eyes like this, at least in my memory. 
um, to make sure that he read the name correctly. Clearly, the author of this poem, in spite of how he was perceived and treated by the world, had a soul and could not be all bad. It forced them to look at Jonathan differently. What happened next was really fascinating. Jonathan truly transformed. His face softened. He had a big toothy smile and bright eyes. He engaged verbally and joked with staff. It's not so much that he changed. It's that others changed the way they looked at him, allowing him to reflect back a different side, a side that he himself was forgetting existed. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear from you via email or through our Facebook page. If you would like to support the good work of Arlington Street Church, please consider a donation by checking the mail or through our website.